So, Kate, how are you? What number of weeks is for you of confinement at all? <laughs> I think I stopped keeping track. I think it's like five now, maybe. But this week, everything changed and I started liking it. I, I think it's because I have a routine now and I might never leave for the rest of my life. And what about dancing? You don't want to go dancing? Well, I do my own dancing here. I'll just blast some music and then like do a little dance party in my room. It's fine. <laughs> and the neighbors don't complain. My neighbors do it too. And so, <laughs> so I, speaking of getting into the routine, I think that the fear is that this is going to be for a while the new routine. And I don't know whether you know this, but as we predicted, the government has gone back to Congress to ask for mo more money for cares. So the bill of two trillion and change might actually grow. Finally, everybody, even the New York Times, is asking the question of how we're going to pay for it. Yeah, and they're right to be concerned. Our U.S. debt now, our national debt, is over $24 trillion. If you break this down by taxpayer, it's about $200,000 per person. And we haven't run a budget surplus since fiscal year of 2001. That's almost 20 years ago. You were not even born when this happened. That's not true. <laughs> I wish. I wish I were 19 years old. Anyway, so what we're going to do in today's episode is we're going to try to figure out how we're going to pay for it and whether this is going to be disruptive or whether we can handle it uh, fine, given that we are the great United States of America. From Georgetown University, this is Kate Waldock. And from the University of Chicago, this is Luigi Zangales. You're listening to Capitalism, a podcast about what's working in capitalism today. And most importantly, what isn't. So before we enter into how we pay it uh, long-term, the sustainability of the debt, et cetera, let's walk the listener through some basics. So when the government approves the CARES Act, $2.2 how do they pay for it? Well, I think there's confusion about issuing debt and printing money. Those can be separate and distinct concepts. So when it comes to like the $2 trillion of the CARES Act, that's dollars that the government's sending out to businesses or individuals in the form of checks, and that those dollars need to come from some like tangible place. Now, normally, if we had enough tax revenue coming in, we would say, you know, we're going to be able to pay for these dollars of spending with dollars that we're bringing in by taxing our citizens. But obviously in this current year and probably in the next few years, it's not going to be enough. Like we're not gonna bring in enough tax money, which means that we need to finance the difference by issuing debt. And if you wonder who buys that debt, in part it's you indirectly. When you have a deposit at a bank, that deposit is backed by an investment in treasury debt. When the government issued that, somebody else has to be on the other side and buy it. And this somebody else can be either you indirectly, so U.S. financial institutions, or a foreigner, like the Chinese government, who wants to hold some of the dollars in reserve. Or, that's the third possibility, the Federal Reserve. So, that, so those $1,200 uh, individual checks that are going out from the government that have that have Donald Trump name stamped right on top of them. Where are those coming from at the end of the day? From your future taxes. In a sense, what you're doing is, at least collectively, what we are doing, we are borrowing from our future selves, which makes a lot of sense in a moment of despair, right? And how do you borrow? Either you issue treasury 
or if people want, you issue dollar bills. But dollar bills are nothing else than the right to use that to pay your taxes in the future. What is a, a piece with $10 written on a piece of paper? Is a claim that you can get something out of the government with those $10, at the very minimum, paying your taxes in the future with those $10. So a dollar is nothing else than a little piece of debt of the US government. So Kate, let's clarify one thing that often get people confused because you mentioned a scary number that basically each one of us owe $200,000 to, to whom? And it's just what, when you divide the debt, by population. You are implicitly making a comparison between personal debt and government debt. That comparison is a little bit misleading. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about personal debt, right? Let's say you have a bank loan. You owe the bank $20,000 for some home repairs. That's something that you'd have to eventually pay off. That's not necessarily the case with the U.S. federal debt. We do have to pay interest on it every year, but it's not like it matures at some point. And at some point in the future, you know, we owe $24 trillion. The idea is that when it matures, we're issuing more debt. We're continually issuing debt. And what matters at the end of the day is that that new issuance is sustainable. And so what is really important, the crucial question that we need to figure out is not whether we can repay the existing debt, but whether we can sustain the payment of interest on a regular basis. And that's the reason why people use and abuse this famous ratio of debt to GDP, because the GDP for the US government is your tax base. And you know that you can only extract so much from your tax base, so you cannot use it 100%, not even probably 50%, and you have to pay a lot of other things. So how much of it can you take away every year to pay interest? Well, so in terms of the actual numbers, it changes every year, but what we're spending of our federal budget on federal interest is about 10% which is a non-trivial amount, right? That's 10% that like could have been spent on infrastructure, could have been spent on like education, things like that. But we're spending that amount every year just to pay interest on our debt. Now to this point about GDP, yeah, I mean, we do want to maintain a debt level that's somewhere around our GDP, more or less, right? Like we don't want our federal debt to be many times the size of our GDP. But this number also fluctuates quite a bit. Back around World War II, it was as high as 120%. Now it looks like if our GDP shrinks by a lot this year, right? If GDP shrinks by 25%, we run the risk of having our debt to GDP ratio be 150%, which is a little bit scary. But at the same time, other countries have sustained these sorts of debt to GDP ratios, or even worse, for a while without defaulting, like Japan, for example. And so it's not like there's a number that's written in the sand in terms of you know what sort of debt to GDP ratio is dangerous necessarily. No, you're right. And and I I don't want our listeners necessarily to be scared by the ratio that will come up at the end uh, of this year, because what we are concerned is the sustainability in the long term, not in the short term. In that sense, what matters is the long-term GDP. So if one year you have a, a much lower GDP, but your expectations are that you go back, 
that year ratio of debt to GDP is not that relevant. It's a bit like the price earning ratio of a stock. Current earnings can be negative, but why is it be, be, the price will be negative? Of course not, because people expect future earnings to be positive, and that's why you have a positive price. Yeah, and ultimately, if people were really so concerned about our default probability as the United States, then they wouldn't be willing to lend to us, or if they were going to lend to us, they'd be lending to us at pretty high rates. That's just not the case right now, right? What we're seeing is historically low rates. I mean, they've recovered a little bit since a few weeks ago, but rates are still quite low. We can borrow on on a long-term basis, on a 30-year basis, at about one and a quarter percent. And so if people are willing to lend to us at such low rates, then there's the argument that this is the right time to be financing stimulus packages so that we can get past this recession relatively quickly and go back to high GDP so that we can then pay back that debt. So in addition to the CARES Act, there's also been discussion of trillions of dollars being spent by the Federal Reserve to engage in the purchase of, in some cases, government bonds, in some cases, corporate debt. So where is that money coming from, right? Are we issuing bonds to finance the purchase of bonds? In this case, it's a little bit different. Banks have a reserve account with the Federal Reserve where they have to hold some money just to make sure that they have enough that's, let's say, liquid. Now, if the Federal Reserve wants to purchase from the balance sheet of a bank, something like a U.S. Treasury that the bank already owns, right? Repurchase that Treasury from the bank. They're not going to do that with dollars. They're going to do it with credit. So the Fed will just credit that account with the amount that they owe the bank for that bond, and then they will put the bond on their own balance sheet. And in that sense, it is sort of like they're printing money because that credit that they're creating is just coming out of thin air. But at the same time, we don't really need to worry as much about this printing money type operation leading to inflation that we would normally be worried about if the Fed were just printing literal dollars, because they're holding a security that is earning interest for the Fed, that's earning interest for the government. And the expectation is that down the road, when markets recover, when banks recover, when everything's stable and there's plenty of liquidity, the Fed will just sell that security back to the bank and then the bank will hold it on their balance sheet. And so this type of open market operation, even though it sounds scary that we're printing money, and in essence, that is sort of what's happening, we don't need to be as concerned because the expectation is that that uh, transaction will be undone eventually. So we're saying there are three options on, on how to buy the debt. One option is that the Fed literally buy the debt from the Treasury and print some money or issue some money. Most of the money is not printed because it's digital money, but anyway, issue some money. And to the extent that people or banks want to hold that money because they want to hold it as an investment, then we are paying by increasing the number of dollars that people hold in their pocket. If that number can increase dramatically without creating any inflation, then we kind of have a free lunch and we can have that increase without anybody really paying for it. That's, to some extent, what the modern monetary theory is claiming. To to the extent that at some point people say, you know what, I don't want to hold 90% of my wealth in uh, dollars that yields nothing. I want to start investing in stock. I want to start investing in houses. I want to start investing in other things. They want to reduce the amount of dollar they hold. And then in that case, either the 
Fed has to sell back the treasury to some investors. And so the investor will demand a return. And so we're back that the government eventually borrow from people or we're going to have inflation. So I think what this boils down to then is the United States, if we're looking at this country in particular, what sort of situation are we in and how much are people willing to continue to hold U.S. dollar denominated debt? Now, this is also a pretty challenging question because we're not necessarily like other countries. And I'm not just saying that like, oh, we're special or whatever, but we actually do have a slightly different system when it comes to our currency that grew out of an agreement after World War II that countries weren't going to keep holding gold. That was too complicated. Let's just have the U.S. government hold gold and other countries hold the U.S. dollar. Now, this isn't exactly the system that we have anymore. That's slowly been dissipating. But the U.S. dollar is sort of special in the sense that it is viewed by many countries as a reserve currency. In terms of currency that's held by countries as a, as a reserve, that amount used to be about 70% held in U.S. dollars about a couple decades ago. And now it's slipping. It's around 60%. But still, countries mostly use the U.S. dollar as a store, as a reserve. This has been called the exorbitant privilege, this idea that like everyone wants dollars. And because people want dollars, that allows us to borrow cheaply and to continue borrowing. And so the question is, you know, not only how much do we want to keep holding our own debt, but how much are other countries also willing to continue lending to us? And this creates this sort of fragile balance of trust that we don't want to break, right? We don't want to spend so much money that all of a sudden we lose that privilege and start to have to pay much higher interest rates on our debt. Whether this all leads to inflation, whether this leads to people panicking and selling off U.S. government securities, this question of how much debt is too much debt, for a lot of countries, boils down to how much confidence is there in our debt, right, in our currency. And that's a difficult question to answer. And whether we've reached that point or whether our spending on coronavirus is going to tip us over that limit. I don't think it's going to, but it's hard to say. This is where economics meets politics or geopolitics big time. The willingness of people to hold the dollar is very much a function of the role that the U.S. government has in the life of everybody on the planet. And so the reason why the United States enjoyed this exorbitant privilege in part was because was the hegemonic power since World War II. As we move to a world in which uh, there will be probably two powers, China and the United States, I think there is a question of maybe a number of countries will feel better protected by the Chinese government than by the US government. Another sign is gold, right? There's always gold as a store of wealth. And if during panicky times, people are turning to gold rather than the dollar, that's not a good sign. And there's some evidence that that's going on. And so I think that we should, we should be worried, right? We shouldn't feel like we can just spend profligately, but at the same time, some of this privilege is still around. Yeah. So this is very difficult to manage politically because it's much easier to say you cannot do more than X because then this puts a political constraint saying that you certainly can do more, but down the line, this might cost you dearly, and down the line, this might cause a crisis. Our political system 
and most political systems for what matters tend to underappreciate the long-term cost and overappreciate the short-term benefits. So the temptation of saying spend more today because there is no cost in the future is very high. Now, the opposite temptation is to say we are screwed, we can't possibly borrow anymore. That's clearly wrong. In the past, we might have exceeded in that direction. Now, in this corona situation, we tend to go to the other side. And I think uh, the reality is in the middle. So I think it makes perfect sense to borrow more in this moment of crisis. However, money does not grow on tree. We need to be very careful about the way we use that help because eventually this is going to put some kind of burden on us. We need to be very strategic especially if we think that this problem is going to last for a long term because we are going to need more and more money. Okay, so it's pretty clear that we shouldn't be trying to pay down this debt today, right? We don't have any money today. GDP is dropping by how much, who knows, but it's pretty clear that right now is a time when we need to be spending on ourselves and not worrying, at least in the moment, how to pay for it. But eventually we will have to pay for it. So in a few years, assuming things recover, Luigi, should, should we be worried about raising taxes? Should we be worried about, you know, how to boost GDP, how are we going to end up paying for this additional $2 trillion at least? So the best way to get out of that is always to grow. And you can grow the GDP in two ways. You can grow GDP by having many more people. I don't think the planet needs a, a huge demographic boom. Or by increasing productivity a lot. If we can, that would be great. Uh, we have not done that well recently, and I'm not so sure that we can out of a magic wand, increase productivity and explode. So the other possibility is to increase taxes. And then the question is how and in what form? And so this corona crisis is bringing back a discussion we had a couple of months ago on this podcast about a wealth tax. When we ran the episode uh, uh, last time, one of our listeners complained with me about what we said in the episode about the wealth tax. So I decided to invite him on the show. Luigi, you can't just invite everybody on the show. Yeah, but you told me that we wanted to be more friendly with our listeners, so I thought that was an opportunity. Okay, but we can't have everyone on the show, all of our listeners. But uh, what about if uh, he's a good friend of mine? That means you're playing favorites, and I thought you were against cronyism. What about if his name is... Gene Fama, and he happens to have a Nobel Prize in economics. I guess in that case, we can make an exception. So, Gene, when you, we did the last episode on wealth tax, you had some uh, major objections about this. Uh, <laughs> what were your major objections? Well, I think everybody talks about it, and they don't consider the fact that it could possibly affect asset prices, and everybody will, will end up paying the tax through declines in asset prices. Nobody ever even talks about that. It's like you can take whatever you want of wealth and that will have no effect on asset prices. That doesn't make any sense to me. So th there was a very simple example you, you wrote in, in your response. Can you walk our listener through that example? Basically, the basic point is that if you have a wealth tax that you collect every year, that's not really a wealth tax anymore. 
it's either you can consider it a tax on income or, or a tax on consumption, depending on what the asset is. And when you think of it in those terms, it turns out that the tax is a much bigger fraction of income or consumption than it is of, of wealth. And you should be thinking of it as a tax on income or consumption because you're collecting it every year. Sorry, can I pause you there? What do you mean by thinking of it as a tax on income or consumption relative to wealth? What's the difference? So I talked about a bond that was paying 4% a year, and its price was $100. So the equilibrium return on it was 4%. So if people demand the same after-tax return, if you take 1% of the $100, that's $1, you've taken a quarter of the, of the return. So it can potentially have a big price effect because you're taking such a large fraction of the return. And so if... And this is a big if. If expected returns don't change, and so the right. bond will fall in price. So the right. point. So, it, so everybody that holds the bond then pays the tax. Is basically paying for the tax, even though no tax gets collected. And if the price falls, the wealth tax falls with it. So it's kind of self-defeating tax. But not only self-defeating, but the point you're raising, which I think is important and, and often not discussed, is that this will impact the people that don't pay the tax directly. Right. But all this is based on the assumption that the expected return doesn't change. And the, the argument you make applies also to income tax. So you're saying if you increase the income tax on interest income, then you should see the same effect. You should, well, every tax should have a similar effect. If, if people are concerned with after-tax returns, every tax has that kind of effect. So it's not specific to the wealth tax. It's, it's no, no. But what, what happens with the wealth tax is it looks like a small tax because the, the proportion of wealth that you're taking is small. But in fact, the proportion of income that you're taking is high, rather high. So it can potentially have a big effect. And the, and the schemes that were proposed by uh, Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren was only the, the quotes rich who were going to pay the we're going to pay the tax, but the rich hold lots of the assets. So that doesn't mean it won't have a big price effect. If such high taxes meant that prices of assets went down by a lot, mm -hmm. then why in the 60s, when the marginal tax rate for wealthiest people was 90%, why weren't asset prices severely depressed back then? Uh, that's because that's apples and oranges. That's, that's a tax on income, not a tax on, on investment. It, who knows what effect that had on incentives? It's hard to tell at this point, but it doesn't in principle affect asset prices except through the effect it has on the wages that people demand because the tax, tax rate is so high. But I thought you just said that we should think of the wealth tax as a tax on income. A tax on income from the wealth. Right. And so just think of it as a really high tax on income. From oh, The income from the wealth. That's why it affects the value of the wealth. Exactly. But, but Gene, in, in the, actually, I don't remember, in the 60s and 70s, uh, how was uh, interest income and uh, dividend income treated? Was it, it was taxed at 90%? Regular, it was no. part of regular, uh, regular income. You paid a regular tax on it. So even in the 60s, when the marginal tax rate was 90%, you were paying sure, 90%? If you had, if you had, if you had uh, interest income, you, you paid on your combined income. And so you had, you had a marginal tax rate of 90% of your interest income? Yeah, but nobody ever paid that. Why? I don't know. Because, <laughs> because it, as, as Merton Miller always said... You know, when he worked in the, in the Treasury Department, he said, you have to give rich people a way to stay rich. So you, give them a, you, you put into the tax law things that allow them to work around it, basically. So the collected taxes never, never approach 90%, I don't think. 
And so we don't really know what the ultimate price impacts would be, but we know the prices aren't going to go up. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> That's pretty, that we agree. Right. <laughs> right. And the, but the second part that can't be forgotten is that everybody pays the price. Everybody pays the tax implied by the fall in the price, not just rich people. No, I, I understand. And I, and I think your argument is particularly true if this is a tax that we stay in place all the time. But now many European countries are floating the idea that if you want to pay for the cost of the pandemic, you will have a once-in-a-lifetime wealth tax. Well, uh, that's not what they're saying, actually, but yeah, and what then, they're saying is it's going to be a 10-year tax. Okay, whatever, but it's more in the form of what happened after World War II or, or after World War I of some kind of extraordinary tax due to yeah. an extraordinary reason. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I, I can see that you, you may say you want, to, you want to impose a wealth tax now, a one-time tax. That, that, that's fine, but my own view is you shouldn't do it differentially. Everybody should pay it. So it, the, the only fair tax, in my view, is a flat tax. So if you're going to impose a tax, you, you impose a flat tax. And then the rich do pay more because they have more. Uh, but everybody has skin in the game. But, but in a sense, what you are saying is regardless of who is taxed, Everybody pays it. Yeah, but they don't pay. Their the, ri the, rich, the rich pay more because they also pay the tax. I see. <laughs> they, don't, they don't just get the capital loss. They also pay the tax. It's, it's very dangerous for a democracy to impose taxes differentially because it gives the incentives to the poor to steal from the rich. I mean, is it a huge concern, right? Is it one of the most pressing concerns right now that the poor will steal from the rich? It's, it, it is indeed. What, what were the... Uh, What, were the, what policies were Sanders and Warren running on? It was basically steal from the rich. Right. But if we just look historically at what the actual realized problems are, that median house, household income hasn't been rising for the past 30 years, over my entire lifetime, right? just being a regular person hasn't made you any better off. And that the investments of today, I mean, like, what are we getting from them? How is my life being made Better. Everybody's life apps. is better than it was 30 years ago, pretty much. 30 years ago, sure, but in the past decade. And yes. there's just a ton of dry powder. There's a ton of capital being deployed to every possible business that needs financing. Obviously not now, today, in coronavirus. We're in a different environment. But I don't think that, like, lack of financing has been the problem for the past 30 years. It's been that the poor what, haven't what, what been... What point are you addressing, from, though? I don't, I'm not getting your point here. I mean, you're saying that, like, the... The problems we should be worried about are these hypothetical problems that certain politicians have been raising. Politicians who are no longer in the race, by the way. But I'm saying that we should be worried about the realized problems that have actually come to bear in the past 30 years. Well, we, that's a totally different topic. No, but in, in a I'm, sense, I'm just saying, what are your priorities? My, my priorities? Which, which, to, what, what, what are we talking about? I'm not. Are we talking about inequality or something like that? I mean, I don't yeah. know. Inequality, I'm, inequality, I don't know what to do about it because I don't know what the optimal amount of inequality is. Nobody ever raises that question. It isn't zero. Can, can I intervene a second? Because I think that you're talking past each other. I think both of you have a concern. They are opposite concern, but they are both valid. One concern is, is there a tendency, if you have a perfect democracy, for the poor to steal from the rich? And the answer is yes. Now, Is today the biggest concern? This is what Kate is about? No, mm -hmm. because when we're far from a perfect democracy. And if I have to see the political system, it seems that actually the political system is designed 
take away for the second the taxation part, but the rest is designed more to take from the poor and give it to the rich rather than the other way around. So I think <laughs> that if you have a combination of a more balanced tax rate and a system that works for everyone, then both of you are happy. Well, wait, Luigi, now, what fraction of the taxes get paid for by, get paid by the rich? In this, today, Very 90%. High. Right. Yeah, I so know that. Yeah. How are they stealing from the poor? Oh, through the fact that the rules are rigged. So take an example. There was an auction for 5G, okay? This auction for 5G require buying back some spectrum from small dinky radius, okay? And what private some private equity firms did, they bought it from this small dinky radius then they lobby the government to structure the auction in a way that will make them super rich. So they made of the order of one billion in this transaction, where there basically was no risk involved, was regulatory basically arbitrage, and the regulation was changed by them lobbying. And so they took a way of a billion that end up being paid by whom? And they're being paid by all of us when you make phone calls. So it no, is a form of distribution. I'm, def I'm definitely going against all of that stuff. So there, there's lots of stuff in the uh, political process that's lousy, that's really bad. That's a good example. But, but so that's the reason why I say that, I think that's the, the, of the two of you agree more than that you disagree. But let's say hypothetically, and I'm not saying this is necessarily true, but let's say hypothetically rich people who are rich now are rich because they've been stealing from the poor for the past 30 years. Shouldn't some of that be undone in some way? Well, you, you're... I don't know how you, how do you decide who did that? I mean, if, in cases like Luigi Reyes, that's fine. If you think they stole it through the regulatory process, then fix the regulatory process uh, so, so that that doesn't happen. Uh, I, I don't know how, to, how, you, how, how you do that except on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So you one think because one. we can't determine who stole what amount that we just shouldn't try and undo any of those discrepancies, no. those inequalities? You want to improve the system. You want to get rid of the system that allows that to happen. No, that, that's for sure. But to Kate's point, Gene, after World War II, there was some tax on war profiteering that I think that some of that profiteering probably was legitimate, but some was excessive, especially at the time where people were dying uh, to, to save the country. And so there was a, a broad taxation to reshuffle things and make things more fair. So I don't think he's completely out of the reasonable set, what Kate is saying, that say may, maybe if we establish, and I don't think we have established uh, strong enough, that most of the people who made a, a ton, they made it in kind of a war profiteering, then we want to have a maybe again once in a lifetime wealth tax to kind of redistribute things. That that was, uh, I think, is your point, Kate, no? Yeah, that's my point. Well, you can, is it a, a, once, a once and for all wealth tax to pay for this epidemic would be fine. I, I, I'm, I'm all for that. I mean, I'm not all for it. I mean, I think that's, that's legitimate. When you're gonna, if you're going to do it every year, then I've got a problem with it. We all talk in economics about one-off taxes not being distortive. That's fine. But the, then the, the second question is, once the politicians get the one-off tax, what's the probability that they'll use it for everything? And that we'll get a one-off tax, you know, basically, every, periodically. Uh, so it's a that, slippery slope, which is why yeah, we should do it. It's a very slippery slope. In, in Italian, we use this Latin term, una tantum, <laughs> means 
once forever. But uh, it, <laughs> then we say it's una semper, one every time. So I think that uh, the transformation from uh, once in a lifetime to all the time, I think is, is dangerous. I, I think we need to to stop here because we need to go to the rest of the episode. But Jean, thank you very much for your participation. Okay. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah. Take care. Kate, uh, did you realize that we got Jean Farmer to say that uh, in this situation, a wealth tax is justified, especially if we can make it credible that uh, we don't do it again? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I don't know. Is that a good thing? Is that that extreme? Uh, I think it's interesting. I'm not saying it's extreme. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I think that it's an indication of the fact that probably we are going to get a wealth tax after the crisis. Because if even the more conservative uh, economic thinker agree with the fact that this might be a solution, I think that it's very hard to see this is not happening. So, Kate... If we don't pay with a wealth tax, how are we going to pay for it long term? Well, I mean, there's any other type of tax, right? We could raise income taxes. We could go back to higher corporate tax levels. We could start taxing gifts, inheritance, things like that. I mean, you know, there's any manner of taxes that we could raise. It doesn't have to be wealth. So why people bring to the, to the picture the idea of a wealth tax, why they don't want a ordinary higher income tax of some form? I think that higher income taxes are on the table. But part of the issue is that we're already dealing with massive inequality right now. And raising taxes through income doesn't deal with the fact that there's a lot of wealthy people who don't necessarily earn a whole lot of labor income, but hold a great deal of wealth. And so raising income taxes, I think the tax burden ends up falling on people who make a lot of money per year, right? They maybe make like half a million dollars per year in compensation, but those still aren't necessarily the richest people in the world. Not to mention, we shouldn't be raising taxes by extreme amounts on people who are making like $50,000 a year. But I understand your concern, but imagine that uh, I listen to your concern and I want to do it by increasing the personal income tax on, on capital. And since your concern is inequality, your concern is about uh, people not making enough to survive decently. And that concern could be easily addressed by a, a massive increase in the marginal tax rate on capital gains and dividend income. So why not that and prefer wealth tax? Sure. Well, in some sense, they would be similar. They'd be taxing the same people. But when it comes to dividends... If you raise the dividend tax rate, that's just going to incentivize companies to buy back stock more. And most cash is returned through buybacks anyway. And when it comes to capital gains, you're only taxed when a stock is sold. And a lot of rich people just hold on to stocks their entire life and then pass them on to their kids who don't have to pay taxes. So then it's like, all right, you're, you're raising a tax that is never actually realized. And so if you just tax the actual stock itself, well, that's a wealth tax. Actually, there is one thing I would like to, to say that we're not said at all in, in this discussion, which is the generational issue that I, th I find it very important. What nobody discusses it is that both the COVID itself and the measures that we are taking to fight COVID have massive distributional issues. If uh, we uh, let 
COVID run by itself will kill mostly older people with relatively small consequences for younger people. On the other hand, the moment we put all these shelter-in-place rules, we save a lot of older people's life, but we kill a lot of young people's livelihood. The livelihood of the old people is not affected because many of them are retiree and live off their pension. So uh, they pay no economic cost for their fighting measures, and they get all the benefits. So in a sense, the ideal way to pay for it will be a tax on the elderly. Now, I'm not so sure, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not so sure that a tax based on age uh, is constitutional. However, a tax based on wealth, is a, especially financial wealth, is pretty highly correlated with age. It's not perfect, but it's pretty highly correlated with age. And so that makes the prospect of a wealth tax in the near future more likely. So is the idea of a wealth tax after the coronavirus crisis an idea that is capitalist or capitalisant? I think that while our national debt isn't something that we should constantly be losing sleep over, I mean, it might seem high as a percentage of GDP, particularly this year and maybe next when GDP is low, uh, it's still not so alarming that we're going to default anytime soon. Uh, we still need to keep in mind that we have to pay for it at some point. And given inequality, given the various tax loopholes in place, I think a one-time wealth tax should be part of how we pay for it. What do you think, Luigi? I think that we'll see what the bill is at the end of uh, all of it. But having that as an option seems to me a very good thing to have. Also because just having as an option might reduce the risk of uh, having a confidence crisis that would be devastating. I think it's great that we have that option. And uh, we're lucky to be wealthy enough as a country to be able to afford several months of downturn without breaking the budget. My heart is to developing countries like India that don't have that luxury and where millions of people might die as a result one way or another because you don't fight the coronavirus uh, and million people die. You do fight it by shutting down the economy and maybe a million people die of hunger. Capital Isn't is a podcast from the University of Chicago Stiegler Center in collaboration with the Chicago Booth Review. Also check out promarket.org, a publication of the Stiegler Center. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to Capital Isn't wherever you get your podcasts.